everyone, and welcome to episode number 24 of the Modern Classroom Project podcast. My name is Kareem Farah, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of the Modern Classroom Project, and I am joined today with co-host Zach Diamond. Zach, how are you this evening? I'm doing well. I'm excited for this one. So am I, so am I. So today's episode is similar to one you and I co-hosted a couple months ago, and it's the Q&A episode where we basically had the community ask questions uh, to us, and today we're just going to answer those questions. We're going to read questions off. Uh, folks submitted them through Facebook, through Twitter, through modernclassrooms.org, backslash AskMCP, or use the hashtag AskMCP on Twitter. Uh, we have a nice diversity of questions today, which is going to be really, really interesting. Um, we're going to go back and forth, ask the questions, answer them to the best of our ability, and hopefully provide some support to folks who are learning and implementing our model. Um, so why don't we just go ahead and get started, Zach? Um, I'll go ahead and read off the first question, and then let's start talking about them. All right. So the first question I see is, I teach students at a variety of grade levels. I notice my students in higher grade levels are excelling, but younger students are really struggling. Any ideas on how to support students um, at the younger grade levels? I was actually excited to read this question because, Zach, if I do recall correctly, a couple of years ago when you first launched this model, you actually struggled with this very same question with your eighth and seventh grade students versus your sixth grade students. Yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So let's start with your thoughts on this, and I'll share anything else I have to add, but I don't know a better person to answer the question than you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was going to mention that. I think we actually talked about it on, on a previous episode of the podcast. Um, so I teach all three middle school grades, and the sixth graders were struggling. Uh, I was basically rolling out the model in an identical way in in both, right? So I, I learned the hard way that younger students need more supports. I was surprised um, by how much of a difference there was just across basically two consecutive grade levels, but there really is. You know, we talk a lot about how flexible the model is and how adaptable it is. And I think that just to take that point even further, I think it's a really important and great feature of the model. But just to take it a little further, it has to be adapted for you know, different developmental needs at different grade levels and, and other different reasons as well. So you have to look at your own classroom and see like, where are my students struggling? What's going on? And, and figure out how you can adapt the model. And it can be adapted. You know, you don't have to stick to any like prescripted or proscribed way of doing the model. And so in my case, I had to sort of take away a little bit of the self-paced time and add in more full group, just basically announcements at the beginning of class. Even just that, like I took five minutes at the beginning of class for my sixth graders and that got them on track for the, for the rest of the, you know, 50 minute period. Um, and I, and I learned that actually from other sixth grade teachers at my school who, who weren't dealing with that need to adapt across grade levels, who were focusing only on sixth grade. You know, I went and I observed them. And if you have the opportunity to do that, uh, that's a great way to, to learn strategies that work for particular grade levels. Um, but yeah, I mean, I definitely think that the model has got to be adapted. And I think that younger students need a little bit more structure, uh, whereas older students can thrive. And even if they struggle a bit, can actually they can learn those meta skills, those executive functioning skills in a more loose and sort of self-guided way, whereas younger students need more structure. You know, it's I, I think I agree with everything you said. And one thing that I've noticed is this pattern, like this concern and or question, arises exclusively with educators who teach multiple different grade levels. Yeah, yeah. Like you taught 6th, 7th, 8th. So you were doing the model in the same way across the grade levels. And then we're surprised naturally when one group didn't quite pick it up in the same way. Whereas 
you know, a teacher who just teaches third grade will not necessarily experience this problem. So it's actually less about the fact, less about the age of the student, because we've seen this model be implemented beautifully, you know, at the kindergarten level and beautifully at adult learning, but also the inverse, right? We've seen people struggle at those levels as well. So I think the key distinguishing factor for this question is it does look different in different grade levels. And if you teach a variety of grade levels, it does mean that some of those structures you built for one group need to be tweaked for the other group. It requires a little more planning naturally, but will impact it. I mean, I think the general uh, assumption here that is fair to say is that the younger grade levels, students need greater structure around how the classroom operates. So like where you pick up assignments, how you access content, how you submit things, and then greater structure around deadlines and self-pacing. So, you know, how long the self-pacing is, maybe if you're doing it for seventh and eighth graders for three weeks at a time, for your sixth graders, maybe do it for a week at a time. Um, You know, if you're thinking about sort of what pacing structures you're using, maybe doing more sort of goal setting at the beginning of class, check-ins with students more frequently. So basically scaffolding the self-direction and self-pacing element are going to be necessary. And just for whoever asked this question or for anyone out there who's struggling with this concept, just know that it's actually not about the grade level you teach. In other words, it's not that it only works in certain grade levels. It's just understanding that at every grade level, you basically have to scaffold self-pacing and self-direction a little less. So if you teach multiple versions, you're going to have to treat those groups of students slightly differently. And that's normal. And that's great because you're building them. You're helping build those 21st century skills for future grade levels. So yeah, absolutely. And just, just to add one more actual strategy that I use with my sixth grade students so that this listener can try it out. Uh, sixth graders, I have found struggle with the longer blocks of independent work time. So I would uh, I would sometimes like if a student asked me a question, I would sort of like pretend that a bunch of students had asked me that question and I would get up in front of the class and say, hey, can I have everyone's attention? And I would talk about the question that this one student had asked me. But it breaks up the sort of long work time that younger students tend to struggle with that older students can sort of handle. And that worked really well for me, sort of just halfway through the class, standing up and making a 30 second announcement to the class to talk about a question that one or two students have had. And also, you know, it's an opportunity to do a reteach if students actually need it. But yeah, breaking up the long work time has been uh, useful for me with younger kids. Yeah, I think that's spot on. Spot on. Cool. So should we move on to the the next question here on the list? Absolutely. All right. This is a short and sweet question. It says how to implement mastery checks when students are at home. Yeah, you know, we get this question quite often. And I mean, the simple answer is it's not particularly easy, obviously. Implementing any elements of things from home can be more challenging. I think the key here is really trying to leverage the technology in creative ways. Um, You know, I think the most common methodology that folks use is first think about where feedback is going to be given. And a lot of folks have actually defaulted to using live documents like a Google Doc um, for every single student and housing all the feedback for a particular unit or for the entire year in that one Google Doc. It's like a running mm. document of feedback. Wow, that's that's interesting. Yeah, and it's a cool way to say, hey, students, like whenever I give you feedback on your mastery checks, it's going in this one spot. Um, you know, that's not the only way. We've heard of people giving feedback sort of through video feedback or directly through their LMS and all that good stuff. Um, it's just a way to keep it organized. Now, once you've developed sort of your methodology for giving feedback, the next step is thinking about the medium for the actual mastery check. Um, this varies heavily on sort of content area oftentimes. For math, you know, a lot of times it's upload a picture 
of your work that you've shown to solve a problem, um, or it's using some of the effective programs out there like GoFormative um, and other tools like that to be able to provide those assessments. You know, in English and history, a lot of times it'll be Google Forms or Microsoft Forms. Um, so folks are, you know, answering questions in long form and they might provide multiple versions of it and only when the kid needs to revise do they get the other version. Science tends to emulate your math classes where you want kids to actually solve problems out. So if there's a cool sort of ed tech program that allows you to do that leanly, you use those. If not, have the kids actually solve the problems and take a picture and upload it. And then in some of your elective classes that are performance-based, music, language classes, there's a lot of sort of audio and video uploads utilizing the core functions of, of students being able to upload and record themselves doing something and then submitting it that way. Um, you know, ultimately the medium will change. And this is in the in-person setting. Like I remember actually observing a middle school sixth grade classroom where some of the master texts were Google forms and other ones were actually auditory. They would articulate something. Um, in other examples, it was, you know, written on a piece of paper. Uh, so, you know, my, my general feeling is to vary uh, the medium with which you do it. Think about two or three core avenues, but really focus more first on the feedback because I think that's the harder part is if you have the feedback system down, then the method with which you ask the questions is actually a little easier. Um, so that's my gut reaction, what I've heard from educators out there. Yeah, yeah, totally. I agree. Uh, that's that's basically what I do. I Well, one of the things you mentioned is what I do, which is having kids take pictures of their work. You know, I teach music and they use online tools to to make the songs and so they just take a screenshot and that's that sometimes i ask them to annotate it putting a picture into a document is really easy and having them we use the google suite at my school and google classroom makes it really easy for the teacher to assign the same work to every different kid they make copies automatically it's it's really great uh, the grading tool is fantastic and yeah it, it, it makes it very easy it's actually the same thing i did in the classroom but yeah, I, I totally agree. Creativity and flexibility with the format, right? Like what your mastery check is. Uh, as long as it shows mastery, you're the one who gets to choose what the check looks like. It can be anything. It could really be anything as long as you think that it, it demonstrates mastery of what you're asking the kids to master. Yeah. And I mean, one thing I'd also add is like, just generally speaking, it's a good opportunity to teach kids tech skills because a lot of times the barrier to entry is, you know, things like dropping a picture into a Google Doc and then sharing it or, you know, somehow uploading another medium. So, you know, I would encourage folks who use this model, build an instructional video on how you're going to do mastery checks. And you could say, you know, there's three ways you're going to do mastery checks in this class. You're either going to do it through, you know, dropping a picture into Google Doc, or you're going to take a Google form, or you're going to use this platform and just empower the kids to actually learn and use it as an opportunity to leverage um, them actually learning some tech skills, which is valuable. So that's just something to consider as well. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I hadn't thought of that. But actually, this year, a change that I made to my structure, well, to my first unit was that I actually made that a lesson. Like, here's how to take a screenshot. And here's how to draw an arrow on Google Slides so that you can point to the thing that I'm asking you to do, right? Um, I made that into its own entire lesson. I had to learn how to do that because last year, a lot of them didn't know. <laughs> they would ask me like, Mr. Diamond, how do I take a screenshot? And I was like, wow, I took that for granted. But now I'll teach you. And a lot of times, those videos are the easiest videos to make. Yeah, because it's just like a quick sort of screencast of whatever you're doing. Oh, yeah. In terms of like return on investment of my time, it was, it's been huge. <laughs> they exactly. don't ask me that anymore. Yeah, exactly. All right. So the next question is we have a teacher saying I'm looking for ideas for how to encourage discussion in small groups and whole class in my ELA self-paced classroom. And I'd like to do some sort of small discussion per day, the end or even start of class that connects to the unit 
a lesson topic. Um, Zach, I know you reached out to one of our all-star English mentors, Emily Culp. Do you want to share a little bit about what she said? And I can also add any thoughts I have. Yep. So I knew that neither of us were English teachers and that we would be hosting this episode. So I reached out to Miss Culp, who has actually been on the podcast before, talking specifically about full group activities. Um, and she gave me, a, obviously, some really fantastic feedback. Uh, the first thing she wrote which I completely agree with, with having a silly non-academic discussion is the best starting point because some of the quiet kids who hide will engage. This can be a daily do-now routine or it can be a way to practice speaking and listening standards apart from the pressures of a specific text. And I, you know, I wholeheartedly agree. Talking about stuff that's not school-related, while it doesn't get at the part of the, the connecting to the unit or lesson that the question asker is asking about, it's really great in terms of social emotional learning and just feeling like you belong in the class, you know, and talking about the things that you like, I can 100% get behind that. She also said that you can always bring a unit back to the essential questions, no matter what pace or what lesson each student is on. So you pose an essential question at the beginning or end of each class and students could use examples from what they know so far, however far they are in the unit to support their answer. And I think that's also a, a great idea for an English class, but also applicable outside of English class as well. There are fundamental components to any unit that we plan. And you could always have a, a discussion about them. I feel like once the students have gotten past the first lesson and know what the unit is about, uh, that's that's definitely a great way to tie whatever everyone is doing together and have a sort of interesting, diverse, but still collaborative discussion. Yeah, no. And what, you know, what I would generally just say to folks about this is try your best not to feel like everyone needs to have mastered a skill before you have a discussion about a skill. Kids are used to, I mean, the reality is the traditional model. I mean, every day kids are sitting through classes where they do not have the prerequisite skills to know what's going on and they just sort of participate. And ultimately, especially in sort of your English classes, um, they're a core like anchor standards and ideas. And I think you should, you know, educators should feel comfortable sticking to those core ideas and, you know, having discussions at the beginning of class uh, and not being afraid um, that some kids might not have mastered that skill. I think it's good to have those discussions. They're going to be wondering and sort of inquiring about what they're going to learn. And that kind of builds curiosity and excitement. The other really powerful one that I often tell educators about is start class with sort of a discussion around common misconceptions. You don't even need to frame it that way. But one of the beauties of doing the model is you're going to continuously gather information about what students do and do not struggle with um, in the unit. So it's nice to kind of at the beginning of class say, hey, today I want to have a discussion about this. Um, you know, a number of students have struggled with identifying theme in, in the particular chapter of the book. So I wanted to kind of dig in a little bit more about how you do that. And I wanted to lean on some folks who've had success. And that's a great time to have some folks who really excelled on that particular concept to also share their insights. So it's a really nice way to bring the class together and have a discussion, but still make sure it's data driven. Because the reason you're bringing everyone together to have that talk is because you've seen evidence of students struggling with it. And it also ensures that the students who haven't gotten to that, that skill yet is going to be even more prepared, right? So they even have like some additional kind of remediation discussion about it prior to even accessing it, well, which will increase the likelihood that they're successful in that lesson. So those are some ideas as well. 
That's a great point. I, I didn't think of it that way, but to not be afraid that you might be talking about something that someone doesn't understand, yeah. like as if that wasn't happening all day, every day in our classrooms anyway, nothing bad will happen if you put some material in front of a student who doesn't fully understand it. Um, I think only good things could happen. Either nothing will happen and they won't care or their curiosity will be awoken and they'll be like, oh, I want to get to that. And I'm curious about what that is. Uh, exactly. And I, I provide the same rationale for why students should move on to the next lesson, even if you haven't gotten the opportunity to grade their mastery check. Because if they made a mistake on lesson two that affects lesson three, they're going to go to lesson three. They might replicate that mistake when they're having to leverage what they learned in lesson two on lesson three. But it's going to be a great opportunity for you to have a discussion about why the mistake in lesson two has an impact moving forward, right? So it's actually kind of a beneficial exercise to let folks see the impacts of their mistake. If you're struggling to add fractions and then adding fractions contributes to how you do the next lesson, when you eventually get to that kid and say, hey, you actually need to revise this lesson and or do a reassessment, and then you can point to their next lesson and say, look, like this mistake you made in this lesson is actually contributing to why you're struggling in the next one. So this is why it's important to actually get this right um, and understand this skill. So I think it's harmless. Um, and in addition to that, there's plenty of discussions around content that you can likely develop um, that are just unrelated to kids' mastery, right? There's plenty of discussion topics and ideas folks can be talking about but just don't specifically have to do with whether or not they master lessons one, two, and three. So I think these are all great options. All right. So let's go on to the next question here. This question says, my struggle is supporting students with special needs and a co-teacher who is not bought in. Yeah, this is a challenging one. I mean, anytime that you're trying to innovate in the classroom, I don't care if you're doing the modern classrooms model, the new strategy, anything, you know, it can be challenging when colleagues particularly who are a part of the classroom that you may be leading or co-leading um, isn't bought in. So, I mean, naturally, the first thing that needs to be addressed is why uh, the co-teacher is not necessarily bought in. And by the way, we've seen this happen in both directions, right? Co-teachers totally bought in, lead teacher is not, or the reverse. Um, ultimately, what I have found historically is when folks are not bought in, they just haven't seen the evidence of why it works, why it's empowering a greater amount of conversations between teacher and students and less compliance and listen time. So I think the first thing that needs to be done is just kind of articulating the rationale and articulating what folks should be looking for. We had this discussion a couple of times with admin when we had partnered with schools and districts and when we continue to partner with schools and districts. A lot of times admin will say, you know, how do you conduct a classroom observation that's a modern classroom? Because there's misconceptions about what to look for. And if you're looking for things that you're used to looking for in a traditional setting in a modern classroom, they may not exist then you may think, well, then this isn't good teaching. But if you know what to look for, it reframes the classroom and potentially illuminates the really positive impact. So you know, the first thing I say is just have a, have a chat with your co-teacher and say, here's why I'm doing this and here's what the upside is. If you're not seeing the upside, then it's worth continuing to dig in and have those conversations. But if your rationale is that you don't like it just because you decide you don't like it, then, you know, I'm going to push you to really think hard about the rationale and address the areas that I think are really powerful. From there, I think really helping define roles is also very valuable. Uh, I found that co-teaching in this model was exponentially more effective because I could go into the beginning of class and 10 minutes before class, me and my co-teacher would have a discussion and say, you're sitting over there. I'm sitting over here. You're focusing on these seven kids. I'm focusing on these 20 kids or, you know, I'm focusing on these 11. You're focusing on this 15 um, and then just go. And by having those really clearly defined roles, you almost 
forget that you're co-teachers and just focus on student learning and small group and individualized discussions. And once you continuously do that, um, folks get comfortable and natural and no longer becomes a problem. So no, I don't think there's an easy answer. Co-teaching in this model tends to be really, really powerful. And co-teachers who do this well say it's, you know, by far more effective than the traditional approach. Um, and building buy-in is always a challenge, but start with what folks are actually supposed to be looking for and identifying and just provide greater clarity around the roles of each individual in the classroom. Um, I always found that traditional co-teaching, like the roles felt very confusing to me. So I was like lecturing and then the co-teacher was sort of just waiting for me to finish. And then it was like, what do we do next? And is there a pullout? Is there not a pullout? So, you know, ultimately I think there's a lot of upside down the road, but building the buy-in can take time and I wouldn't be too anxious about it. What I've generally experienced is that when a classroom truly does contribute to student learning effectively, everyone tends to come around eventually, um, but it can take time. Yeah, I mean, I, I've never taught with a co-teacher, so I don't want to say anything out of turn, but I, I personally can't imagine not being bought in anymore. And when I imagine teaching with a co-teacher, I basically just imagine another me, you know, somebody else who can walk around and check in with kids, because that's essentially what I do in the classroom. And the the question asker specifically asks about students with special needs. And I think that even more so in that case, you know, we we talked last week about adapting mastery checks into a conversation, basically, like changing the format of your mastery check for a student who is unable to access the format that you're giving to the the class in general. And a co-teacher could probably be really helpful with that as well. You know, just sitting with the kid and saying, yeah, yeah, I think that she mastered it or um, working with them to master it. I would even add on that front, like, ask the counterfactual, meaning like, just ask them what it is that they miss about the previous form of instruction, because it's hard to conceptualize what it is that they would miss. And if it's something like, I miss having more direct instruction with the kids, then the answer is great. Pull a small group and do direct instruction. Yeah, yeah. There's there's nothing in a traditional model that you couldn't adapt into a modern classrooms model. Exactly. So that's why I always tell folks, like, you know, if there's concerns, it's very normal to have concerns. Just really tease out what the literal concern is and figure out to what degree is this something we can or cannot address. Because um, I think that's a, a key exercise. And what hey, will most likely happen is the concerns actually have a solution. And ultimately, you can then you know, place that into the model because the model has that level of flexibility. Yeah. Awesome. I find this question fascinating because I experienced it a ton. I'm guessing you did too. Uh, the question is, thoughts on students that are trying to skip parts of lessons. They're trying to get to future lessons and mastery checks done before doing the actual classwork. I am so curious what you have to say on this, Zach, and then I have my thoughts. Okay, so first, the the, the nice answer, and then after that, the mean answer, okay? Um, <laughs> I think in some cases, students who are way, way behind might be able to skip certain parts, and I will deem, I will make that decision for them even if they're not behind necessarily, but if they, if they miss something and I can see from the rest of their work that they're okay, I'll, I'll be okay with it, right? And I think that goes back to the idea of being flexible. But, and here's the mean answer, you know, we see every single mastery check. And so we don't have to check it off and say that they mastered it, right? Like if, if they move on without getting the, the check, we'll see it and we can tell them to go back. And I think that that's one of the really great things about the model. It's one of the things that I... Like I always wanted that data, but I never knew how to get it before modern classrooms. And when we talk about being a data-driven model, I feel like on a very granular level, that that is the data, right? Like that is a data point. 
a mastery check that's not complete is a data point and you are the gatekeeper to the next lesson. I, I mean, I, I let my students access all the lessons from the beginning of the unit. It's all open. They can do whatever they want in whatever order. Obviously, the logical order is one, two, three, four, five, but like they can do whatever they want. And a lot of them will. They'll like zoom through them and then they'll wind up having four uh, lessons that they have to revise. Once they do that once, they never do it again because they don't want it like have to go back and redo all this work that they feel like they've already finished. And so they'll learn, like, turn it into me, ask, tell me they've done it, and then be very confident that they can move on before actually moving on. And so I guess my point is, we have the data to see whether they can or cannot move on. And we are the gatekeepers. So you get to decide you you can tell them go back and do it again. That's that's what the revision component is. Yeah. And I mean, I have two thoughts on this. One, if they're actually getting the mastery checks, right? then it's worth considering why you're requiring to do the assignment, you know, and that's, that's like, and that's not honestly all that common in my experience. Um, you know, I've definitely met with and heard from teachers who actually have students who are just acing mastery checks because they're that advanced or, you know, frankly are just in, in courses that they probably don't need to be in. Like they're, you know, in eighth grade math, but they're frankly ready for algebra one. But If that's not the case, which is the rare case, this is a classic example of don't overcorrect and micromanage. Let the student learn from their mistake. It is incredibly tempting to just be like, oh no, what are they doing? Let me like stop them now. But it's more effective if you let them do that. And then when you have the time, because you got to their mastery check, like don't rush, don't go out of your way, pull them over and say, look, you didn't do the assignment and you didn't get the mastery check right. This pattern is not going to change and it's impacting your performance in the class you have to understand the damage that you're doing to your own performance and the way that you're wasting your own time because what you're basically doing is rushing not getting credit for the assignment then not getting the mastery check right so you're spending all this time working and not seeing any positive output at the end as a result and my experience you know, and it can be a long journey, right? Kids can get frustrated, um, but eventually they start to understand the clear negative impact to rushing and not having attention to detail and appreciating the importance of practice. And that will come around. Just don't be intimidated if it takes a little while. Don't be intimidated if that means, yeah, a kid really struggled for, you know, five straight lessons because that's what they did. It's okay because the lesson they're going to learn from that about the importance of practice and revision is going to be far more transformative than you interrupting right after that first lesson and getting frustrated. Yeah, absolutely. As you were talking, I thought of well, I thought of two different students. Last year, I remember a student at the beginning of the year asked me, Mr. Diamond, if I can just do the mastery check and I get it right, do I have to watch the video? And right in that moment, it was like the first week of school. I was like, well, do you? And I, and I decided right then and there, I was like, actually, no, you know, we're, we're grading on mastery, right? We're not grading on completion. We're not grading on whether they watch the Ed Puzzle video. We're grading on the mastery check. And if they know it, then they don't have to watch the video. That's right. And the other student that I thought of, I'm teaching him now, he's, he's just doing this thing where he breezes through all the, all the assignments. And he's, he often submits pictures that show that he like didn't do the right objective or he did the objective for the wrong lesson correctly. But, and it's like, you're going through this too fast. You need to slow down read the instructions, watch the lesson because I demo everything. And and he is learning the lesson. Um, he actually just emailed me about his grades. And, and so I feel like that lesson comes across because there's like a natural consequence to, to breezing through stuff. That's exactly right. 
All right, here is a question for the organization of Modern Classrooms. It says, what is the difference between the Summer Institute and the Virtual Mentorship Program? So the Summer Institute and the Virtual Mentorship Program are actually quite similar. Uh, The primary difference is actually what we already know about summer versus the school year, which is that mentors who are also educators have greater flexibility in their schedules to host live sessions and to be working throughout the day. And similarly, educators have greater flexibility in their schedule and have more time to be able to invest in planning. So as a result, the Summer Institute first is faster than the virtual mentorship program. Summer Institute is broken up into three sessions and each session is four weeks whereas a normal virtual mentorship program session is usually 8 to 12 weeks. Um, In addition to that, there's just more wraparound supports. So you're getting greater amount of live sessions, more office hours, more subject-specific supports because there's greater availability. Um, And folks are in a Slack channel, so there's a lot of conversation across educators. And honestly, one of the biggest differences is the Summer Institute is going to be anywhere between 800 and 1,200 educators all traveling through the program at the same time. Um, So there's greater collaboration amongst colleagues across state lines and across districts than you would have through the normal virtual mentorship program. So very similar programs with the Summer Institute is a little bit more robust and a little faster because it, it has greater freedom from the teacher and mentor schedules. So that's the core difference there. Hey, so I have a question for you, actually. If the Summer Institute fills up, will there still be just regular virtual mentorships running throughout the summer during the Summer Institute? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, generally speaking, between that June 28th time and then the end of August, the all the virtual mentoring is going to happen through the Summer Institute. So folks will be enrolled in the individual virtual mentorship program or in school and district partnerships up to that point and then after that. So, you know, it's not like the only time you can ever get the virtual mentorship the virtual mentorship program is available all year long. But if you want to go through the virtual mentorship program in July, it's going to be through the Summer Institute. Got it. This next one's a fascinating one. We get it quite often, actually. I'm struggling with what to do with students who fail mastery checks multiple times. Um, Zach, do you have any initial thoughts on this one? I'm happy to share my insights as well. Sure. I mean, my my take on this And I don't mean this to sound harsh to the question asker, but in my own personal experience, when that has happened, it's because my lesson wasn't effective at communicating the skills that the students needed to master the mastery check. And so I had to go and and really work with the kid one-on-one to be like, what don't you understand? How can I help you? How can I support you? What can we do to make it so that you master this? And then I would go and I would look at the lesson itself and be like, oh, I actually didn't really say that. Like I, I taught one thing but my mastery check assessed something else. And so I think that that might be a place to start uh, looking at at the lessons and just seeing how closely they're aligned to the mastery checks themselves. But if it really is the students who are struggling with the mastery check, um, I would consider breaking it up into smaller chunks. So maybe seeing if there are like multiple components for the mastery check that you could make into two separate mastery checks and two totally separate lessons in which you could go a little bit deeper on the two components. Or just use the, the time that you have to sit with students and work with them to support the student, uh, which we, re- we really do have a lot more of that time. We talk about it on nearly every episode you know, of the podcast. We, we have so much free time in the classroom to work one-on-one with students. And so that would be an opportunity to, to really work with the kid and help them understand the content. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I don't think there's an easy answer to this question. When it happens, it usually is indicative of, like you said, Zach, maybe some tweaks you could make to the lesson. But more importantly, the student is really struggling and, and may have sort of a skill that that 
is a prerequisite to the lesson that they're actually struggling with more and it's causing a real challenge there and mastering the new skills. So, you know, my general piece of advice there is, is work hard and do your best to really diagnose uh, the problem, right? Is, is the issue what was taught in that particular lesson or is the issue actually a larger problem, um, more general around sort of a student is struggling with a prerequisite skill. At that stage, I mean, you know, those are your opportunities to really do that targeted one-on-one instruction. And in certain cases, it might warrant sort of a wraparound support, including someone else um, in the school building who can provide greater clarity on maybe some of the issues that the student is having, or, um, you know, just requesting kind of like a tutoring session, like, hey, can you meet with me after class or meet with me at lunch because we need to dig in this deeper. So, you know, I've certainly experienced it plenty of times. And frankly, back when we were in the in-person setting, I almost always asked that kid to stay at lunch when I was available or after school because they just needed like a 30-minute deep dive into the skill. And that's usually when I got the opportunity to uncover that, you know, there was a skill from the prior grade level um, that they really never learned. And it was just driving a lot of confusion. And those, those moments were actually valuable. So I found that when that did happen, while you know concerning and, and challenging, it often led to longer, more important discussions uh, that ultimately benefited the kid down the road because it meant that I had helped address a much larger skill gap that they needed to have filled, or this would keep coming up year on year, uh, skill on skill. So I thought it was a, I always found it to be a good exercise. Yeah. All right, so this is our our last question for the evening, and this one is really interesting. It says, it does seem heavily teacher-led still with videos, etc. How can you vary to have a little more student direction, maybe more assignment choices or product choices? Such a fantastic question. Yeah. I love it. We were actually discussing this today um, at one of our Modern Classrooms team meetings or staff meetings because we noticed that a lot of times people make the assumption that instructional videos have to be direct instruction of new content. But videos don't have to be leveraged that way. Um, And we are going to continue to work as an organization to provide greater clarity on the different ways you can leverage an instructional video. So, you know, instructional videos in a a classic form um, are, hey, I have a skill. I'm going to explain the core contents of the skill, just like I would in a lecture, but replicate in a video. Kids watch that video, then go do a task. But oftentimes, instructional videos can be inquiry-driven, posing questions, presenting scenarios, and then kids go tackle those things, in which case, you're really not actually doing anything teacher-led aside from just posing the task or activity. Additionally, Videos don't have to come at the beginning of lessons. I always said that when I first observed my co-founder teaching with instructional videos, his videos came at the end of lessons. So kids would start with an open-ended task. It would say something like, here's a data set. Go make a visual representation of the data set. They would go do that. They'd present what they've created. And then the video would explain what a standard statistical application of that data set would look like. So kids would actually stretch themselves first through an inquiry-driven approach there wasn't really a right answer. I mean, there was a right way theoretically to create a visual representation, but the expectation wasn't that kids would just develop the right answer quickly um, and on their own. So that's another example of it. And then I always say like videos are a powerful way to launch projects and think about project-based learning. So a lot of times I had videos that would just articulate the constraints of the project. So in this project, you're going to be analyzing, you know, these two uh, cities and trying to understand what's different about city one and city two, and you're going to create a report, and the report's going to have this many parts, and it's going to be assessed using this rubric and go. 
right? So to what degree that teacher led, I mean, it's hard to give direct, to not give directions as an educator, but the bulk of the work there is still being driven by the actual student. And then ultimately, I mean, choice, nothing about our model doesn't, you know, allow educators to, to give students choice. So if you have a methodology that you would provide in the traditional setting to provide students with choice, whether they can pick from a variety of different activities in one lesson or different pathways to get to the end product, um, you know, that works fantastic with our model. And, and what I always tell folks is the video does not have to be explaining a new content or standard. It can be explaining directions. It can be explaining tasks. Um, so that's how I would think about it. Yeah. And that's exactly what my class is. So I, I feel like my answer to this question is essentially project-based learning. Um, you know, the the content of my videos is actually very simple, like deceptively simple. Students think it will be hard, but it's actually like really simple. Uh, one of my One of my recent lessons, I was teaching kids that they had to make a chord progression uh, which is one of their one of the requirements for the project that they were working on. And I basically gave them in the program, here are four chords. You need to arrange them into any order that you want. So all they had to do is basically order the chords in whatever order they wanted. But that's not a difficult task, but it, it's a creative task. And they got to decide what the chord progression would be. And so like like you say, it's it's more of a task really than a than a or or like a set of directions than content. Um, I mean, I did teach them what a chord progression means, but I think that that's the answer. Like each one of my lessons is something like that. It's a simple task that can be done in a, in a number of different ways that allow for creative choice. But I, I don't know. I feel like in a certain sense, like at the very fundamental level, it is still teacher led because I'm the one who invented the project, right? I feel like it would have to be a pretty radical departure from what we understand teaching and learning to be to to not have it be teacher led in a certain sense and i am i'm definitely open to like critiquing and thinking about this and looking at other options but i personally feel like since i started implementing modern classrooms these particular concerns have been answered for me modern classrooms does give the students more choice it gives them much more direction and you know the products that they get to make that's up to you you can be an open as open ended as you want and modern classrooms wouldn't hinder that in any way i don't think no yeah i mean i i would say that's it's natural to leverage this model but still have sort of a core teacher led element but any way that you think about not making it teacher led in both a traditional and modern classroom setting can be done and i think the modern classroom setting actually makes it easier um so you know, I just encourage educators to think creatively about how they can give students greater control if they feel comfortable with it, and then just do it. If that means varying the way that you use the video, the location, the lesson that you use the video, or not even having a video at all. Like I had a couple lessons, honestly, in plenty of units that just didn't have a video. It was just an activity or task. They would, you know, at lesson three, there was no video. It would just be some sort of open-ended task or question. They would tackle it submit a product, have a mastery check and keep it moving. And at that stage, I mean, it was about as student driven as possible. So, um, those are some, those are some ideas there. Um, it's a great question and it is, I, I really feel like the, the level that this question asker is getting at is beyond modern classrooms versus traditional classrooms. Like I think it's a, it's a question of, you know, your fundamental pedagogical approach. And I definitely don't feel like modern classrooms in any way would prevent you from, from really going all out with this and, and, filling up your class with glorious student products and student choice and projects and all the fun stuff that we could do. You know, you kind of heard me laughing as I read the question. And that's because I hear lots of my own thoughts and opinions reflected in this question. You know, I, 
uh, there's always a part of me that that wants to give more control to the students and let the students have more fun and let the students have more choice. But I think that the reality for most teachers is that we have certain curricular content that we have to teach the kids. And, and that's just the way things are, for better or for worse. And it should certainly be up for debate. But what Modern Classrooms gives us is just a better model for delivering the stuff that we need to instruct to the students to do or tell them how or or what have you. Well, and ultimately what we have seen historically is it's an accelerator for ideas like this. So um, we have found that educators find it easier to do inquiry-based, project-based learning, um, student-driven style models when they layer it on top of the modern classrooms approach. So I think it's fantastic. We've seen it in many ways. My co-founder taught everything through inquiry-based, project-based learning. I taught a number of my units through that. Um, so continue to innovate. And if, if folks have new ideas of how to execute the model, share it with us. And I'm sure we'd like to feature it in one of the avenues with which we share our approaches with educators. So lovely question. Cool way to close too. Yeah. Um, so Zach, uh, as usual, I really like doing these Q&As with you. I think it's fun to just kind of bat around different types of questions that folks have. So we're going to continue to do uh, structures like this. So thanks for jumping on today, Zach. Yeah, yeah. It, it tickles that part of my teacher brain where it's like, what do people want to know? You know, like, what do people have questions about? Exactly. And I feel like I grow myself when we discuss it. So a lot of fun. Thanks for joining Zach tonight. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and uh, everyone, remember, you can always access our free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org. Our website's at www modernclassrooms.org. Our summer institute is live. Folks are registering. We are almost at 50% full already for the summer institute, and it was launched just a month ago. So if folks are interested and want to join our summer institute individually, make sure you go to www.modernclassrooms.org backslash summer dash institute. It's also under the what we do section. It'll explain how you can register. If you're coming through a school or district partnership, we usually enroll cohorts. And if you're trying to enroll by yourself, check out the enrollment options. It costs $4.95 per educator. We also have a school sponsorship form where you just fill out the form. You get a letter of support and an invoice to hand to your principal or school leaders. And in the not-so-distant future, we'll have a crowdfunding option as well. So um, I hope everyone is getting a little bit of rest through this crazy, crazy time. And thanks for listening. We'll be back at it next week. Bye, everyone. <laughs>